around free speech is that uh, it's within every individual's ability to to personally ensure that their own behavior is aimed at f promoting the values that free speech is all about. Welcome to Running Need Radio. This is Joanna Barron, and this week I am speaking with Lauren Hooser. Lauren Hooser is a journalist and lawyer. She was recently an editorial fellow with The Walrus, and as of just last week, she is the National Post's common editor. Lauren has a new piece in The Walrus magazine online, which I will link to in this episode's notes, titled The Real Threat to Free Speech, where she identifies social media filter bubbles and quote-unquote soft pressures to self-censor as being effectively more corrosive to open discourse than laws themselves. And so this conversation focuses chiefly on the cultural threats to free speech. Lauren's piece in The Walrus is very thoughtful, and I recommend reading it in conjunction with listening to this podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lauren Hooser. Uh, so I'm here in Toronto with Lauren Hooser at her apartment having some lovely tea. Um, and Lauren and I have a number of shared interests. We're both former lawyers who are fond of writing, and Lauren has written a wonderfully perceptive and provocative and very much zeitgeisty piece for the walrus on free speech and the politics and cultural as well as legal politics surrounding it. Um, and Lauren, I've been sort of following your progression as a writer and I really enjoyed your piece a few months back in The Walrus about Professor Jordan Peterson um, and the controversy surrounding him. And I, I don't want to get into the specifics of that debate, um, but you were critical of certain aspects of the debate. And I can see the sort of progression from your observation about Peterson's intransigence about the state, state of the law to the nature of the argument you're making in your current Walrus piece, which is that I think, as you say, free speech activists are missing the forest fire for the trees. Um, so how did you get interested in these issues? Uh, so just at the Walrus, uh, working with John Kay, we were in a conversation about um, the climate in which people are afraid to uh, say contrarian things. And I think uh, it's an interesting conversation and when you get into this topic you have to be clear about the kind of speech you're talking about because a lot of people think when you're talking about free speech you're talking about people like Milos who say the worst kinds of things and that that's who you're interested in defending and there's and it's certainly the case that the fringe the, fr uh, the fringe kinds of free speech issues are the ones that tend to make law but what John and I were talking about and I think we're in agreement about is that uh, just moderate mainstream Canadians uh, are feeling uh, uh, um, reluctant to uh, express, not way out their views, not really extreme positions, but just contrarian positions, uh, ones that don't accord with what their peers may, might think. And so uh, that became an interesting sort of investigation for me, because it was a question of, is there actually data out there to support this, and, and what would that look like? And we can get into it, but there's been interesting research, for example, on Facebook users and Twitter users, and how regular social media use affects uh, people's online behavior. People become 
less inclined to express views that differ from their peers in online settings. But then what's particularly interesting is that um, Pew Research Center additionally found that people who were using social media regularly were also becoming uh, less inclined to express contrarian or unorthodox views in in-person settings as well. And so I think uh, social media is one way that you might begin to me uh, measure or look at uh, a climate in which social intolerance can affect speech. Uh, but one of the real challenges around this issue is it's hard to come up with empirical data. It's, it's a sort of sense that one might have from self-examination and conversations with friends, but it's, it's hard to say, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure that this is an issue because uh, it's, it's often based on sort of, uh, you know, broad feelings and uh, anecdotes and, um, like I said, self-observation. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's, it can be hard to measure. Yeah, well, I think it's something that certainly everybody can relate to instinctively. Um, but you also, in addition to making the observation that, look, um, free speech politics is a big deal right now and we hear it, it's a rallying cry, and I want to get into a little bit later what you and I both think is behind the sort of more explicitly political calls for cracking down on restrictions on speech. Um, but your point is that, look, if you really are concerned about the state of civil discourse and free speech, you shouldn't just be focused on, you know, M103, the motion, uh, uh, discouraging or, or discouraging Islamophobia in, that's currently um, before Parliament and going to be debated next month. You shouldn't just be concerned about hate speech laws, um, but you should be concerned about the broader climate because they really affect affect all areas of society and more quote unquote ordinary Canadians. It's not just you know Mr. Whatcott who is the subject of. Um, uh, the last major case on freedom of expression and hate speech laws of the Supreme Court of Canada, who was distributing um, sort of virulently homophobic pamphlets. It's also um, your colleague who may be a religious Christian and, um, and be pro-life, um, or another colleague who, uh, who supports biblical marriage who doesn't feel comfortable, not necessarily because they'll come under the purview of the law, but because they'll be subject to social censure that are being affected by an increasingly um, homogenic or convergent civic discourse. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I think the key question that people who believe strongly in free speech need to be asking themselves is, what is this, what are we fighting for? What are the values that we're seeking to defend here? Because I think what needs to be kind of kept in mind is that freedom of expression is a constitutional, constitutionally protected freedom for a reason. And uh, it's, there is a belief in democratic societies that free speech is important to hold government to account, to enable communities to organize around uh, common goals and uh, sort of express amongst themselves freely uh, beliefs and and then to organize themselves accordingly and then uh, individually and collectively for people to kind of realize the best versions of themselves and I think that uh, comes through knowledge and uh, you know uh, conversation and uh, unhindered conversation where people are exposed to challenging viewpoints and so 
I think if if you look at free speech issues through this through the prison level, what are the values that are at stake here? Then, then it becomes clear that you know these fringe issues of hate speech laws or um, M103. Not that they're not important, but they're, th those kinds of laws are typically aimed at limiting the worst kinds of speech, like um, obscenity, uh, hate speech that's aimed at you know, causing others harm, uh, false advertising that might induce someone to pay for something that is uh, not what they understand themselves to be buying. Uh, so, so those are aimed at essentially limiting what you might call, you might consider sort of harmful or valueless speech. Uh, and so, yes, we don't want to restrict speech in those areas more than necessary, but it is to be remembered that that speech is not typically at the core of uh, the, the values that we're concerned with promoting, like accountable government and uh, the ability of people to kind of develop a, into the best versions of themselves. And so that's why I think we need to keep or free speech advocates need to keep their eyes on, on the on the kind of goal, the end game, which is the values, not just free speech in the abstract. Yeah. Well, I I, I suppose that it's not necessarily an either or proposition, right. um, because of course there are sort of the surrounding discussions that happen when we societally line up our chess pieces on the board around sort of crystallizing mo uh, move, uh, moments like for example M103 which seems to me to be almost entirely on both sides an exercise in uh, either political opportunism in the case of many of the Conservative Party of Canada candidates who frankly I don't think this would have been as big of a deal if it hadn't landed on the docket, as you say, sort of in the last run of the leadership campaign um, and virtue, virtue signaling on the side of its defendants. Um, but it does sort of give us a crystallized moment where we can have a tangible issue to sort of elicit various, our various views about, you know, the, the limits of acceptable discourse. Um, and I also found that to be the more interesting aspect of Lafelle Peterson, mm -hmm. um, which is it just brought out it brought out of the woodwork a lot of our um, a lot of our preconceptions and assumptions about what's acceptable and what's not. I mean, yeah. Peterson right away had um, accusations of being transphobic mm -hmm. lobbed at him, um, and that in itself is notable. Um, but I I think you're correct that. Perhaps, well, first of all, that sort of surrounding discussion of these legal moments itself might be splintered. Right. For example, somebody might not be comfortable posting on Facebook or, or expressing to a friend that they actually are sympathet were sympathetic to some of the concerns that Peterson was raising. Mm -hmm. um, and second of all, I, I think you're right that just the context of of the conversation itself, even even apart from these sort of newsworthy um, newsworthy issues maybe of cause for concern. Sure, and I take your point that it takes sometimes something concrete to uh, mobilize around or to give rise to concerns and I think that's why the Peterson affair did become such a big thing. I think not because everyone who saw it as a legitimate issue was that concerned with the, the preferred pronoun debate more than they were concerned with the broader issues around political correctness and a, a, and a climate in which people are 
uh, unable or un afraid to uh, say what they really think. And so I think there's, there can be a lot of legitimacy to these, these um, legal issues and um, very important in their own right. I think the key thing is, uh, or the concern is that sometimes free speech advocates really seem to lose the plot and they go way too far in their criticisms and become quite extreme in their claims. And so I spoke with Richard Moon, who's a professor at the University of Windsor and one of Canada's leading uh, speech experts. And he said that in 2008, he had been tasked with making recommendations to Parliament on whether the hate speech provision in the Canadian Human Rights Act should be abolished. And in the course of his study, became really quite disturbed by the kind of campaign that he saw uh, Ezra Levant, Mike, Mark Stein, and then mainstream media pundits sort of picking up uncritically their claims about human rights commissions and tribunals, those laws. And, and he said, you know, what Richard's point is that you, uh, there's a lot of reasons why someone might say we should never, we shouldn't have hate speech laws, and that's uh, valid. You might take from a civil libertarian perspective that the government shouldn't encroach in that way, or you might say that these laws don't uh, achieve their intended effect, and that's fine. Those are reasonable criticisms. But he found that the, the sort of most ardent free speech advocates went way far and above this and were waging a kind of deliberate disinformation campaign uh, that really can just do the whole cause harm, because I think a lot of people from the outside see those criticisms as so extreme and ultimately aimed at really providing a cover for people, for bigoted people to say bad things. And so I think the concern is that you get these speech advocates becoming allied with or almost uh, indistinguishable from the, the bigoted people that they are professing to per, uh, you know, advocate for. And that just does disservice to the cause. Yeah, well, it's also a sort of flimsy alliance. And I think that was exemplified in the recent turn of events with Milo, who you mentioned earlier, um, and CPAC, where he, he was invited to speak at CPAC, seemingly on the pre uh, pretense that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I, you know, I think the, the riots at Berkeley in response to his invitation were just atrocious um, and completely unproductive. Um, but CPAC disinvited the famous for being deplatformed and disinvited speaker because he went too far and made mm -hmm. comments seemingly being uh, showing that he was defensive of pedophilia. And it just showed how sort of flimsy and surface level the entire affiliation between Milo and, and conservatism or the alt-right or whatever is going on in the US, and we'll mm -hmm. talk about that <laughs> a bit later, is, is that it's not based on principle, it's just based on pure political opportunism right. and and virtue signaling or its converse. Sure. Um, yeah. Political correctness, rejection, rejectionist signaling, perhaps. Um, but I'd like to talk about another really interesting and I think super important aspect to all of this that you talk about a bit in your piece, um, which is the uh, the data enclave or the filter bubble. That's the phrase that you use in your piece. The filter bubble aspect to this. Um, can you talk about that? Sure. So. Uh, in addition to the trends that Pew Research Centered had found, which was on people feeling afraid to express contrarian viewpoints, 
there's a additional concern that people are also on uh, on social media being exposed to fewer contrarian viewpoints often without them knowing it and so there's a way in which we, we do this deliberately and consciously, and, and then there's a way in which it's happening without our knowledge. And so the conscious way is, of course, you choose who you're friends with on Facebook, you choose who you follow on Twitter, so you are really tailoring your information feed that way. But then the more interesting thing, and what I hadn't been fully aware of, is this idea of filter bubbles where, uh, without your knowledge, Facebook and Google and other sorts of online platforms are through their algorithms uh, determining based on what they understand about your personal profile what information you're likely to want to receive. And so the person who coined the term uh, filter bubble was is Eli Pariser and he what he talks about in a 2011 TED talk is that he he describes himself as a small l liberal uh, but he was always interested in hearing the views of his conservative friends, uh, although he would have tended to view more, than, more often than not that he would click on the posts of his liberal friends. So Facebook would pick up on this and understand that he's sort of a liberal. And over time, around 2011, he started to notice that he ceased to see posts by his uh, conservative friends on Facebook. They weren't showing up on his feed. And so he started to look into this and what he found was that these algorithms were be de determining that because he was a liberal he wanted to see posts by his liberal friends and that they then just edited out the stuff from his conservative friends. And then Eli went further and found that this is not just happening on Facebook, it's also happening on search engines. And so the example he gives is that uh, a liberal would type in a Google search of BP, um, I guess which stands for British Petroleum, mm -hmm. and they would type that into Google and the first results that would pop up would be stuff about the oil spill. And a conservative might type in BP on Google and the first things that would pop up would be uh, information about their share price of the, of the company. And so you're getting different information without knowing it. Uh, Google is prioritizing the information that they expect you to want to see about something like a company and it could it could be any you know there's any range of examples that Eli gives um, you know one person typing in Egypt and getting travel touristy information another person getting information about the Arab Spring and so uh, getting information that um, kind of suits your preferences and is likely to confirm your own viewpoints. And so what Eli recognized back in 2011 and what I think you're starting to already see play out is uh, this can be very damaging to democratic discourse when people cease to be exposed to contrarian viewpoints. And I think that's a real concern because um, you see it playing out right now in the US and you, you, can't, you cannot obviously attribute it to any one thing, but certainly there's an issue with people uh, um, like Trump supporters, perhaps, who are getting a totally different set of information than than people who are quite adamantly opposed to him, and and that's a concern because how do you how do you move forward as a country on common goals if people don't even understand the issues to be the same? 
Yeah, it's it strikes me as a huge problem. And I would say I would even go further than you and say it's not just that people aren't being exposed to contrarian ideas. It's that the very terms of their reality don't necessarily match up, which yeah. makes it impossible to have a sort of basic conversation. Um, and the thinker that I think is really essential to read on this and is just essential for this time is Douglas Rushkoff. And he writes a lot about data enclaves and how they self-fortify every time we click. Um, and he talks about the digital age being marked by retreat into our own tribes in contra-opposition to the, the television age where it was sort of about shared global experiences. And the television age's rallying cry was, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. Um, and the rallying cry, he says, of the digital age um, which, you know, Donald Trump was certainly the quintessential digital presidential candidate and increasingly president is uh, build a wall and make them pay for it. Um, and, and so it strikes me as a huge problem because, again, we don't even we can't even toggle to each other's worlds. Um, we're just becoming so polarized. And I, I think it's obviously quite a bit more pronounced in the U.S., which takes me to my next question. Um, it seems that your point about Canadians is that we're not as contrarian, we tend to hew to the middle, um, and is this a bad thing if the alternative is America, where, as we just said, it's like it's two different planets, at least two different planets, probably more, but certainly two large different planets of sort of coastal and urban blue elites and, and rural um, red Republicans. Sure. And I, I, I certainly I think we're fortunate we're, we don't have the sort of extremes that you see playing out in the states, but I think we need to be careful about assuming that there is this widespread consensus and buy-in to certain sort of official ideologies. Mark Stein in a piece in The Spectator several years ago talked about um, you know, it being a problem whenever you have official ideologies of any kind, and he uh, he says he gives examples like multiculturalism, climate change, gender flu fluidity. Uh, he says, you know, as soon as you start treating any subject as one off limits for discussion, like treating certain topics as you know th this is a done deal, there's there's total buy-in in this, and how dare you question these views. Um, that's dangerous. And um, I think you could s point to, for example, the rebel and, and uh, Ezra Levant's new media organization and, and the kind of fringe groups that are obviously out there in Canada as perhaps feeling like uh, they are uh, wanting a kind of outlet from people who give expression to views that a lot of Canadians would say these are done issues, like Canada stands for multiculturalism, Canada stands for, um, you, know, you know, climate change action. And I'm not taking a position on what Canada should stand for, I'm just saying if we assume that there's complete consensus on this, I think that can give rise to uh, uh, sort of populist groups coming in and uh, channeling those frustrations and giving outlet and venting th those frustrations of groups who have obviously harbored the view that those aren't closed discussions. Um, I think the flip side is, of course, you need to, as a society, move to consensus on issues at some point in time, otherwise you never get anywhere. So, you know, at some point you, you do have to treat things like climate change or gender issues as a settled debate. So I, th 
I, I'm not saying you can never kind of get to a point where you're going to want the masses to be on board, but I think you do always want to have a climate in which people can respectfully say, you know, I challenge this position and you're going to have people who are saying, okay, I disagree with it, but I'm going to listen to your concerns and respond respectfully. And I think some of the concerns around modern discourse is that um, there's a tendency to shout down anyone who doesn't sort of buy into official ideology. Yeah, I, I think of free speech as sort of a, a constitutional right that I, I elevate above all other rights because it's sort of it's the means by which we negotiate all of our values as society. And I think um, open discourse is the solvent by which, you know, views um, come into moderation and, and are able to be negotiated by other views. Um, but to turn to another point that you make in your piece, you say that sometimes free speech activists um, use their postures of, of advocating for free speech rights in order to advance more invidious claims. Um, and I don't know, I don't believe that you meant it in this context, but I'm just curious to hear your take on this. Um, I've been following the Conservative Party's leadership, um, leadership competition or leadership debates. Mm -hmm. um, quite closely without any preference for any specific candidate, but it comes up a lot. Just it's, it's a rallying cry, free speech, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau's liberals are, mm -hmm. are tamping down on our rights to free mm -hmm. speech, particularly in the context of M103, but also more broadly. And it seems to me, um, this is just my hunch, that probably a very small minority of the audience they're addressing really has a genuine concern for the state of civic discourse. Um, but I think uh, some proportion of others are simply using their complaints about narrowing rights to free speech as a way of complaining about perhaps liberal politics and liberal ideologies, uh, their, per their perception that it dominates elite institutions like universities, like law schools, like the Law Society of Upper mm -hmm. Canada, for example. And so I'm just wondering what, what you think is underneath the political rallying cry for free speech. Right. Um, well, I, I think it's many things. It, it, it can go hand in hand with conservatism in the sense that it's a sort of anti-government impulse and, and a, you know, you'll get in the conservative movement groups who are just extreme sort of libertarians or civil libertarians and, and just take the position that government should really be as minimally involved in or minimally intrusive as possible. Uh, and then there's also these impulses towards, uh, particularly of late, uh, you know, concerns around protecting Canadian values and our uh, Canadian identity, whatever that means. And um, people, I think, use free speech uh, issues as a way they they see that as um, the, the the right to say what one wants and to be critical of other groups as important to that broader goal of uh, protecting this sense of Canadian identi identity. And I think, um, of course, people should be free to criticize other groups and other uh, religions. Um, but, you know, as we saw with the M103 debate, um, at the same time, it's a bit disappointing when you see political leaders uh, really playing to fears and um, uh, exasperating them in various ways um, unnecessarily. Like, 
you know, M103 wasn't um, going to restrict anyone's right to criticize other religious groups. Uh, that was never on the table. The political leaders who came out against it on a free speech basis would have known that. Um, of course, Parliament can express, um, I think there's room for Parliament to encourage people to, in a climate where there is a lot of um, uh, Islamophobia in Europe, for sure, to some extent, we're seeing it in the Trump administration. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with Parliament encouraging the public to, to um, um, kind of be sensitive to how diverse the, the, the Muslim population is. And so um, that's not a restriction on speech. And so um, I, I think there were, to get back to your question, I think the Conservatives latch on to free speech as an issue because it, it, it's, it's uh, a means by which they can get to other issues or values like small government, anti-government, um, you know, cultural issues that are going to appeal to their supporters. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And it can also be, you know, a dog whistle mm -hmm. for, you know, for somebody like Kelly Leach to come right. in and say, let's be honest, these people that we're taking in don't share our values and we need face-to-face -face interviews and we need to, we need to vet them more closely. Um, but the sort of aspirational note that you end your article on says that, look, this is ultimately every individual's responsibility as a citizen to promote public discourse by, you know, offering their own measured, reasonable thoughts. Um, and so it starts with the individual. And as you say, a lot of what we know about particularly the level of, me of discourse on social media is anecdotal. But I recently um, saw, saw an exchange on social media that I thought was particularly telling and that to some extent makes me pessimistic about your, your prescription. Um, a friend of mine who uh, is an academic with degrees from Oxford and Cambridge, who's doing a postdoc at the University of Toronto, is about to go on the academic job market and works on ethics and politics, um, posted that he wanted to follow some alt-right uh, activists on Twitter just to get a sense of what on earth is going on in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, but he was fearful that potential employers would go on his Twitter profile, look at who he was following, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, suspect that he may have some affiliation with the alt-right. And a number of people were commenting about private lists of who you're following and stuff like that. But I was sort of waiting for somebody to address the meta point, which is, isn't this crazy that this person is, is fearful of just who he's following mm -hmm. on Twitter. And yet, and I, and you know, that seemed to me to be a problem. And yet I don't think any reasonable person would think that it was an irrational fear. Sure. Um, particularly in such a cutthroat academic job market. Sure. Um, all of which is to say, I think self-censorship is a real issue and, and it's hard to really see a, a way forward. And, and we really are squarely in the wheelhouse that you address in, this, in, in your Walrus article now, which is not about extreme manifestations or particularly provocative statements, but just the fear that any sort of dint of association with something outside of the orthodoxy, whether it be as extreme as the alt-right or as 
relatively mild as having you know religious views on marriage or things like that could really you know harm our economic well-being sure um so what do you think of the prospects well yeah and i i think your example is an interesting one because yeah what do you do about someone who quite reasonably is fearful of job prospects if they're seen to follow someone on the alt-right movement i think though what i have in mind when because when you say aspirational points on which I end, what I say is that I think that one of the sort of upsides of the challenge uh, of uh, these kind of social issues around free speech is that uh, it's within every individual's ability to, to personally ensure that their own behavior is aimed at f promoting the values that free speech is all about, which is uh, sort of rational discourse, uh, you know, working as communities to achieve common goals uh, and in, in their personal behavior sort of g giving due consideration to other people's viewpoints even if you disagree with them and so I you know what I what I would take that personally to mean is I, you know I would never be inclined really to follow the alt-right movement although there would be I would be I think I'm sure it'd be interesting to see the horrible stuff that gets said on, out there because I'm not even that aware of it but uh, I think just you can be a even um, you can just ensure that you're trying to get w within the sort of more mainstream picture a, a sense of what are liberals saying on this policy issue and what are conservatives saying on this policy issue and that doesn't have to go so far as reaching out to the alt-right fringes it, it just means okay I'm going to make a conscious choice to follow um, you know the Toronto Star and the National Post or in the states you know you know, name, take your pick. But there are certainly media outlets are, that are coming at things with different um, slants. And I think you can choose to uh, tailor your own information sources to ensure that you're trying to get as broad a perspective as possible. And you can choose what you read beyond just news. You can choose what you're ch consuming in your day-to-day -day world. And then I think beyond that, um, uh, uh, just giving due consideration to people who express views that don't um, accord with your own and um, that just I think means being you know open to the idea that you maybe don't understand everything and you don't necessarily appreciate where they're coming from and trying to appreciate where, where another person is coming from I think the bigger challenge will be uh, uh, you know, for Facebook and Google to, um, you know, addressing the ways in which people are not even aware of the ways in which information is being edited out of their sort of line of sight. And, and that can't really be addressed by personal behavior as much. I think there, there's going to be sort of a need for collective action to put pressure on, on these kinds of organizations to, to, to change that. Like as Eli Pariser notes, he thinks that Google and Facebook have an obligation at a minimum to be making people aware of the ways in which uh, their, their um, information streams are being tailored to their own preferences. And then he argues, you know, even to give people a choice about their own settings. So there's certain issues that can't be addressed, I don't think, on an individual basis, but then there's other issues that can. Yeah, and the Facebook and Google and big data, it strikes me as extremely difficult because of course the reason why we are in these self-fortified data enclaves self-curated with every click 
is not because Facebook has any philosophical view about that, but because we like to click on things that we like. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Facebook just learns after I, you know, dismiss a few articles that don't interest me. It wants me to click and keep seeing more ads. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's an underlying profit motive. And, and you know, that's going to be a sort of if, if we manage to change it, it will be a seismic shift. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that goes, but I, but I think uh, it's it's important that you've shed light on this issue, and of course you also um, end your article on an aspirational note by shouting out certain organizations that are enhancing <laughs> the the quality of discourse, including the Runnymede Society as well as the Canadian um, Civil Liberties Association, um, which of course I admire and they do very important work. So thank you for that, um, and I, I do think you know just to shout out Runnymede, particularly that. What happens in our law schools and universities strikes me as particularly important because it's one of the few settings and it's a fleeting setting where you can have openly intellectual discourse, mm -hmm. where it's not about, you know, political pandering or clickbait. It's really just for the sake of exploring ideas. Um, so it strikes me as particularly disconcerting when those environments become dominated by a specific orthodoxy and and lose the sort of give and take rough and tumble of marketplace of ideas culture mm -hmm. um so um, we're trying to make a nudge there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and i one of the things i say in the piece is that you know free speech advocates might say well all of these social issues or social restrictions on speech are kind of outside the realm of our concern and i don't think that's necessarily the case and i think you need look no further than the running meat society and its work on campuses or other groups work on campuses because when you think about it uh, universities don't have a legal obligation generally speaking to guarantee free expression but there is a belief there a strongly held one and i think rightly held that that university campuses should be a place that there's sort of open free dialogue so I think if free speech advocates are willing to make that kind of enclave a cause of concern, I don't see why there's, you can't look at other areas in society and say, you know, th this is another way in which speech is being affected and we want to do something ab about it. And so I, I, I don't think it's the case that free speech advocates have only ever been concerned about legal limitations on speech. I think they have been concerned about other kinds. Uh, it just um, sort of, requires kind of broadening one's focus yeah <clears throat> so um i am asking each of uh each of our guests to name a an idea a thinker or a book that is particularly influential on them and their worldview right. um so can you name anything for our listeners uh, sure well i was trying to think about this and every time i'm asked to name a book or movie it's of course then impossible to think of one but i uh, three key thinkers that i really enjoy um, are uh, David Frum, I think he's one of the leading uh, voices right now in the US. Um, uh, um, David Brooks for the New York Times. Uh, he's sort of right of center, but a really strong, uh, and I would say principled, small C conservative. And I, I think he takes a really interesting perspective sometimes on sort of moral issues. And, and then in Canada, I'm a big fan of Andrew Coyne. I think he uh, never ceases to sort of surprise people uh, with uh, the angles he takes on, on issues and, and I think brings a sort of principled analysis to, uh, to topics. So uh, I, I like all three of those thinkers and, and they are three people I will reliably follow. 
Okay. Well, we recommend David Frum, David Brooks, and Andrew Coyne. Mm -hmm. Read their writing. It's important. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for chatting, Lauren. Sure. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. You can follow me on Twitter at J-O-B-E-A-R-O-N, Joe Barron, or Runnymede at Runnymede Sock, Runnymede S-O-C. You can also visit our website at runnymedesociety.ca to see what we've been up to and what we have planned and to donate if you wish to support the Runnymede Society and or Runnymede Radio. Thanks again. See you next time.